And now we continue our study in the book of Revelation with chapter 18. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for delivering to your son, our savior, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world, how he alone rules over everything and has conquered and is conquering all sin and doubt and rebellion and idolatry. And we ask that he would continue to extend his reign and begin today in our hearts, that he would put down every rebellion, every sin, everything that he hates, destroy it in us so that we may be perfectly conformed to your will and to your kingdom and to heaven's priorities. And so, Father, we pray that you would affect this today as we read and study your word, accomplish this through your Holy Spirit. Fill us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe I've mentioned many times that when I was a boy, when I was a young man, I was fascinated with the American frontier. I was fascinated with the Old West and the frontier days. And the most age appropriate thing for me to read as a young boy were the Little House on the Prairie books, which I read over and over and over. Of course, my favorite book in the series was Farmer Boy because that's the one about the boy. I, I had the most uh, uh, in common with, or it could relate to that one the most. That's the uh, Farmer Boy is about the childhood of Almanzo Wilder who grows up to marry Laura Ingalls. There's a great scene in Farmer Boy where Almanzo, as a young man, he's working with his father. It's threshing time, and he's helping his father spread the wheat on the floor of the barn. And he asks his father, why don't we just hire a threshing machine which could thresh all this wheat? It could separate the grain uh, from, the, from the chaff in just a few days. It won't take all winter to do this. And then the father answers. He says, that's a lazy man's way to thresh. Haste makes waste, but a lazy man would rather get his work done fast than do it himself. The machine chews up the straw till it's not fit to feed stock, and it scatters grain around and wastes it. All it saves is time, son, and what good is time with nothing to do? You want to sit and twiddle your thumbs all these stormy winter days? No, said Almanzo. He had enough of that on Sundays. Enough <laughs> idleness and sitting and twiddling his thumbs. And if you've read the book, you, books, you know, you know what Sundays are like in, in Little House on the, on the Prairie. Well, what Mr. Wilder understood and what he got was that man's role in the world is that of worker. He wasn't living for the weekend. He wasn't working for the weekend. He wasn't, he wasn't using work as a means to get him somewhere or to only get him something. Work is what we are created for. When God put Adam in the garden, he gave Adam a job to do. He gave him a calling. He gave him responsibilities. Now, after Adam sinned in the garden, after the fall, uh, work comes with extra frustrations. Man's work is impeded, but it's not as if we're all looking forward to some golden age where there's no longer any work. Uh, an optimistic Christian view of the future is not a world without work, but a world without obstructions to our work. Uh, a world where the devourer, a world where the destroyer does not come and steal our work. Uh, where we still have work, that's what we're looking forward to, but our work is as fruitful as it can be. So throughout the Bible, honest and faithful labor is praised. It's commended. And it's through the work of faithful men and women that tyrants and strongholds and enemies are shamed and brought low. God, God builds up his kingdom and he builds up civilization through the honest labor of his people. How many times throughout the scriptures is an enemy defeated through the use of a tool of domestic labor? 
One of the most well-known popular stories is about wicked Abimelech. Abimelech was the son of Gideon. You probably know Gideon from the times of the judges. Abimelech was one of his 70 sons. Abimelech declares himself king. He kills all of his brothers except one named Jotham. Jotham then tells a parable about the fruitful trees of the land, all the common people, all the countrymen who are producing fruit, and how this wicked bramble bush that produces no fruit, this wicked bramble king Abimelech has exalted himself over the fruitful trees of the land. And then after Jotham tells that parable, there's a city that doesn't want to submit to Abimelech's reign as king. And so Abimelech attacks that city. And in the process of attacking the city, a woman launches a millstone out of a window and it crushes Abimelech's head and he dies. What's going on there? Well, you have the woman crushing the head of the serpent. That's definitely a picture that you have there. But there's something else going on. A woman uses a tool of domestic labor. She's using something that she, uh, a tool that she has to grind wheat to make her bread, and she uses that for the defeat of the enemy. It's a tool of domestic labor used as a weapon. So the unproductive, fruitless Bramble King is not killed by a sword. He's not killed by an arrow. He's killed with the tool of a woman used for baking her her bread. She's one of the fruitful trees, and uh, that's what she uses. She uses the product of her labor. She uses the tool of her labor for the defeat of the serpent. And that's not the only place. Uh, You also know from the book of Judges, Jael who uh, kills the enemy captain, Sisera. What are Jael's weapons against Sisera? Well, she has a bowl of sweet milk. She has a blanket. She has a hammer. She has a tent peg. And she staples his head to the ground, and he wakes up dead the next morning. Uh, What are her tools? Her tools are domestic tools of of labor. Those are her weapons. She uses uh, tools of domestic labor as her weapons. Another one of my favorites is Shamgar. He only gets uh, a verse or two. Shamgar kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad was this long seven or eight foot uh, uh, stick with a point on the end of it, a sharpened spear that that you use to direct oxen, but you could also use it evidently to kill Philistines. So you see a Philistine coming on the road and you poke him from eight feet away and he can't get to you and you poke another one and you just keep poking Philistines until you've killed 600 of them. But there there is an agricultural tool that's used for the deliverance of God's people. Uh, Not only that, but David's sling, Aaron's rod, occupational tools used in the hands of God's servants for the casting down of the Almighty from their thrones and the deliverance of God's people. Time and time again, the tyrant is defeated and brought to shame by the labor of the faithful. In the New Testament, we have fishermen and tax collectors. We have soldiers and tanners. We have Roman soldiers. The whole world is turned upside down by a physician and a tent maker. Luke and Paul go on their journeys together. Ultimately, we get Jesus, the son of a carpenter who tears down one house in order to build another. Jesus is the preeminent man and Jesus is the faithful worker. He is the faithful workman. In John 5, uh, 5, 17, Jesus says, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Jesus identifies as a worker. So man's labor puts the world to work to produce the things we need for life, which was Adam's calling. Adam's calling was to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the animals. Labor brings good things into the world. Not only does it bring good food and good drink into the world, but also music and books and art and medicine and games and all kinds of things which make life enjoyable. But there comes a point when sinful man becomes so comfortable with the fruit of his labors and he becomes so satisfied with his own work in the world that he forgets how all of this is only possible if it is blessed by the hand of the creator. All of this is only possible if God allows it. 
We don't eat if God doesn't give sunshine and rain in the right measure at the right time in the right seasons, unless God gives us health and strength to go out and work and cultivate the earth and to bring good things out of the earth and to make things with them. We have to have his blessing. All of this, all of human civilization, all of culture, all of society is contingent on God's good favor. And when man fails to give thanks to God for the fruit of the earth, and when man gives, uh, fails to give thanks to God for the ability to make use of the fruits of the earth, what man is saying is, I have life in myself. I have everything I need. I don't need God. Look at all that I'm able to do on my own. <clears throat> Individuals and societies get to a point where they believe there's no problem too big for me. I can solve everything myself. I've got the resources to meet every challenge. I no longer have any need of God. I can even build my own stairway to heaven if that's what it takes. I, I have my own pathway to eternal life. I am in charge. And then at some point, God rejects the works of a thankless society. He rejects their works. He sends them a calamity that they're not prepared for. They have no way of controlling. They have no way of stopping this disaster. And he brings them to nothing. Now, in our study of the book of Revelation, we've been reading the things that Jesus has been revealing to the apostle John, things which must shortly take place. Events that are in John's immediate future. The judgments and the catastrophes that are lined up for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's heart has grown fat. They are living in luxury and ease, and they're not giving thanks to God for all the products of this society that God has given them. Instead, they're using their power and their authority and their influence to persecute the church. I mean, they've put Jesus to death, and now they're persecuting his bride, and now... The, the city is headed for its final destruction in the year 70. We've seen in Revelation three series of judgments. We've seen seals and trumpets, which were warnings. They were mitigated judgments. And then we have bowls of wrath that are poured out. Those are full judgments. And that leads up to the horrific vision that we saw in the last chapter, which exposed the city of Jerusalem as a harlot drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And what this reveals to us is that the leaders of the city, the Herods, the chief priests, the elders of the city, they had prostituted themselves to the Roman empire in order to crucify Jesus, in order to persecute his bride. They have prostituted themselves to idols and to Rome. And, and though the city was full of all kinds of treasures, and though the city was full of history, and even though this was center stage for all of God's mighty acts in the world up to this point, now, because of unbelief, because of the rejection of Jesus, because of the bloodshed of the apostles and prophets, we now have the final judgment declared on the city. That's what Revelation 18 is about. We are now to the final, final, final judgment of the city of Jerusalem. When we close this chapter this morning, as far as the timeline of Revelation is concerned, the city is gone. The lights have gone out. And that really happened in history. When the Roman general Titus, he was the future emperor of Rome, but the Roman general Titus, he sacked the city of Jerusalem. He burned the temple to the ground. He killed or enslaved all of the inhabitants of the city. He knocked down all the walls of the city except for one. He just wanted to leave one standing there so that anybody coming by could see, oh, this was the place that Titus tore down. But the rest of the land was left, was left barren. And uh, historians from the time write that even a few years later, it's hard to believe, it's hard to imagine that a city was once there. It's hard to imagine that people ever lived there because the city is brought to complete ruin. That's the picture in Revelation 18. That's what we're going to read about this morning. This is the time. So this chapter breaks up into three parts neatly. We'll study each part. An angel announces the destruction of the city. Then we get some feedback, some 
observation from the kings and the merchants and the sea captains of the land, the people of the land. And then an angel heaves a millstone into the sea, an odd scene at the end of this. So hold on to everything that I said about work and labor, and we're going to come back to that and button that up in the end. But now let's read verse by verse, and I'm going to read a few at a time and then a chunk at a time, and we'll work through this chapter together. Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. God sends his angel to flood the land with light. He floods the city with his light. He shines the beacon of heaven's judgment on all the dark and hidden and nasty corners. Everything is exposed. Everything is revealed. No one can get away. No one can hide. No one can can, uh, scamper off with anything. Everything is shown. It's encouraging now that the earth is illuminated with heavenly light because as far as Jerusalem is concerned, all the lights are about to go out. Uh, Sun, moon, and stars, all the orders and all the rulers and the governors, everything that governs life in Jerusalem is about to stop and turn to darkness. Jerusalem's calendar is about to end. Like clocks frozen at the moment of disaster, Jerusalem's clocks are going to be stopped because time's up for this harlot city. Verse 2, and he cried, this is the angel crying mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury." The angel calls the city of Jerusalem Babylon, Babylon the Great. Back in chapter 17, when we saw the vision of the harlot riding the beast, Jerusalem was called Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Jerusalem has become like pagan Babylon in all of her idolatries and her perversions and all of her wickednesses. If it it went on in Babylon... It went on in Jerusalem. There's virtually no difference between Jerusalem and Babylon. It's it's common in the scriptures to refer to Jerusalem by the name of a wicked place when it's acting like a wicked place. I don't know if uh, your mother did this, but but mine did. If there was another uh, misbehaving or disobedient child that we all knew, he was notorious for being ornery and rebellious. Uh, You know, I had one in my childhood. The boy was named Rodney, and he was always causing trouble. And occasionally when my mom was upset with me, she'd say, okay, Rodney, because I was acting like the ornery uh, kid. And I knew that then I was, my behavior was unacceptable because she called me by his name, to uh, enlighten me to my uh, obnoxiousness and my, and my rebellion. So God does the same thing with Jerusalem. When Jerusalem is acting like a wicked city, he calls them by that name. It's not a compliment to call Jerusalem Babylon. And already in Revelation, we've seen this city called Egypt. We've seen this city called Sodom. And now it's called Babylon. But there's something more to this. Babylon and Babel are the same word. Babel is the Hebrew word. Babylon is the Greek word. It's the same thing. Uh, Babel, as in the Tower of Babel, Babel means gate of God. Bab-el. Anytime you see a word that ends in El, you know that the word God or Elohim is in that word. So Babel, like the Tower of Babel, means gate of God. And the Tower of Babel is a false gate to God. The Tower of Babel is a false ladder to heaven. The city and the empire of Babylon was another false gateway to God. Yahweh, throughout the scriptures, he's bringing down false Babels. He's bringing down the false ladders, the false gates. But he establishes, God establishes the true Babel, the true gate of God, which is established through right worship. Remember when Jacob has a dream of the ladder extending to heaven and angels coming down and going up on it. And then uh, Jacob wakes up and what does he say? How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. This This is the gate of heaven. 
And then he sets up an altar there and he calls the place Bethel, house of God. And it's also the gates of God. True worship sets up the true Babel, the true Bethel, like we have here. When we gather together and worship, this is the gate of God. This is the house of God. This is the true Babel. Uh, this is where we hear Jesus speak to us through his word, through his spirit. This is where we meet with him at his table. Uh, this is where we're joined to his body in the waters of baptism. This is, this is where life is. This is the true uh, house of God. And we have it wherever God's people are gathered. Wherever they're gathered in spirit and in truth, we have the true Bethel. But false Bethels and false Babels are always judged. So Jerusalem is no longer the true house of God, but the angel says it's a house of spiritual prostitution. And so it will become a house for demons and foul spirits and unclean birds. What does he say? This is a house, this is a dwelling place for every unclean and detestable bird, a hated bird. Well, within a few years... Jerusalem is going to be in habitation of buzzards. That's all that's going to live there is buzzards. Men are to have dominion over the animals, but when man is derelict and man vacates a place, well, the animals take over. So the men are gone, and now it's just an inhabitation of buzzards. And that's what the angel says is going to happen. Verse 4, And I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. We need to keep reminding ourselves of who this book is written to. Who is Revelation written to? Well, primarily it's written to the seven churches of Asia that are listed in the first few chapters. They get some direct messages. Uh, it isn't written, this book isn't written to the city of Jerusalem, but those Christians in those churches in Asia, which ends up being the center of Christendom for about the next 300 years, if not, if not longer, these Christians may still have some ties to the old world of Judaism. They still may have some ties to the old covenant. They're physically removed. They're living a ways away, but they, they may still have some sentiments and some entanglements. This is a warning to them. The angel says, come out, get away, get away from there. This is a warning lest they repeat the sins of Jerusalem and become a false babel. But also, it's a newsflash. It's an evacuation warning that says, get out. Withdraw yourself from any remaining entanglements with Jerusalem or with her form of religion. Now, every one of these cities has a synagogue. And there may be some ties, some connections to the worship and life of the old world. The angel says that's over. The time for that's done. It, when we study the book of Acts, remember for a while, the apostles are still going to the temple, aren't they? Uh, they, they uh, well, while the temple was still standing, it was still part of their life and it was still part of their festival calendar. You grow up as a Jew in and around Jerusalem. You grow up in Judea. It's still, it's still part of your identity. It's still part of who you are. Even the apostle Paul, he takes a vow and he goes to the temple for purification, right? That's what you do. But now the angel says, that's over with. It is time to get out. Extricate your life from everything that has to do with the temple and with the life of Jerusalem, just as Lot is told to get out of Sodom, lest he be judged with the rest of the city. Now the angel says, abandon her to her fate. There's nothing left to save, nothing left to salvage. Whatever's left of Judaism is a Christless religion. There is nothing there. There's no power to redeem. There's no power to save or to give life. So run away. To stick around is to share in her sins and to share in her judgment. Let's pick up with verse five. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. 
here's that situation I spoke about at the beginning. God has blessed her in such a way that she has grown rich and she's grown luxurious. But rather than giving thanks to God through right worship and obedience, she has grown fat and lazy and thankless. So what does she say? She says, I sit as a queen and not a widow. I have become rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. She says, I will see no sorrow. I've got this. There's nothing coming to me that I can't buy my way out of or finagle the strings of political power to get out of this. And yet she's reminded your destruction will come in one hour. As we study this, pay attention to how often the destruction comes in one hour. That's repeated over and over. The destruction is sudden. It's unexpected. It's going to happen. And, and, and her destruction comes with death and mourning and famine and fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. They're not trifling with some regional god or some fertility goddess or some imp. Their rebellion is against the God of creation, and it is he who is coming against her in judgment. Now, now that the, the destruction and the final judgment of the city is declared, we get some reactions from onlookers. Look at verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Last week we saw that there were 10 imperial kings, 10 horns, who participate in her destruction, who hate the city and participate in bringing her down. These are not those kings who now weep for her, but these are other kings of the land, kings who have benefited from her luxuries. They have been complicit in her spiritual fornication. But now that she's judged, where do they stand? They stand at a distance. They're removed. They're afraid of being included in the judgment. They're in amazement as the smoke rises. That's a callback to the, to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as Lot stood at a distance and saw the smoke rising from the city. They realize as they weep that they'll never again share in her luxuries. They'll never again share in her power. They'll never again uh, share in her fornication or her wickedness. Uh, all of that is cut off from them and they're not going to be able to enjoy it anymore. Then comes this longer lament of the merchants and the sea captains. This chapter, chapter 18 in Revelation, is the third longest chapter in the book of Revelation. And it's mostly taken up with this shopping list of all the things that the merchants say we're not going to be able to trade in anymore. Now, I always say that the Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink. He doesn't waste paper. So as we read this, think, where else have I seen lists like this? Where else have I seen these materials in the scripture grouped together? Uh, so let's, let's read the long lament of the merchants and the, uh, the, the, sea, the ship captains. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and soul of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like this great city? 
And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Well, this section has a number of fascinating details. We're only going to be able to look at one or two of them. Why do we get this whole shopping list of inventory? Because we get similar lists in the Bible that have to do with God's material blessings on his people if they keep covenant. And we also get lists of the materials used to build the sanctuaries, the tabernacle and the temple. Let's look at each one of these. In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God lists out the host of blessings that are going to fall on Israel every day. He's going to shower them with blessings if they are obedient to him, if they walk in his ways and keep his commandments and are faithful to the covenant. There would be an abundance of food, crops, herds would abound. They would have peace with the nations and they would never have to borrow anything. They would be a storehouse, a treasure house for all the nations. And that's exactly what happens in Solomon's reign, isn't it? That, that, that Jerusalem becomes the center of the world. And so we see over here in Revelation, because all of these things are flowing into and out of Jerusalem, God has been faithful. He has been faithful to his part of the covenant that he made with them. The list here includes all kinds of precious metals and stones, fine fabrics, costly building materials, rich food and drink, animals. You, you can't name anything that a society would need to thrive that they were deprived of. Is there anything that they would need that they don't have? All of these things are freely flowing into and out of the city. The merchants are doing big business, but they were not thankful. They didn't obey. And now it all goes away. So that's the first thing. This is a list of the kinds of blessings God, God gives a covenant keeping people. But there are other lists that this is similar to. And that's the list of building materials that go into building the tabernacle and the temple. Precious metals, gemstones, wood, stone, bronze, iron, special textiles for the curtains and the coverings, the things necessary to keep worship running, wine and oil and sheep and cattle and incense. This is a list of all of the things that are utilized in right worship before God. And all of this is stripped away as well because it's all been abused. Remember, we studied the corrupt spiritual transactions that were going on in and around the temple the abuses of the money changers and the abuses of those sellers of animals. And while this was going on, the chief priests and the Herodians were getting rich off of the transactions at the temple. All this commerce that's going on, somebody's getting rich, and it was the chief priests and the Herodians. So that when Jesus comes, he puts a stop momentarily for just a very short time. He puts a stop to the commerce of the temple, and he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but what is it? What does he say? This is a den of thieves. This is a den of robbers. Uh, I no longer am pleased with what's going on here. So Jesus symbolically judges it for this very thing, and now it falls here because they haven't used this wealth for the mission that God planted them there for. So the judgment here is not only that the economy of Jerusalem is going to tank. It does. I mean, the, the, the economy tanks, but more significantly, these spiritual transactions, worship is no longer going to take place. The temple is done for, and it is no longer a place where you're going to get blessing, spiritual riches, spiritual benefits, Remember what Jesus told the church back in Laodicea back there uh, in chapter four? He tells the church at Laodicea, come buy from me, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, anoint your eyes with my eye salve that you may see. Well, what is Jesus saying when he says, come buy from me? Uh, you don't have a church coin. You don't have a temple coin that you go to Jesus with and you buy things from him. No, these are spiritual transactions. You ask from him and you receive from him. They're already paid for. All of these riches are already paid for. But the point of this is that from now on, 
You go to Jesus to get spiritual riches and benefits. All the heavenly commerce runs through Jesus. All of the economy of heaven runs through Jesus. It doesn't run through the temple anymore. That is put to ruin. That is packed away and it's never gonna be brought up again. Now, one hint here that, that something, more, um, something more is going on than just material transactions is at the end of this list. Did you catch that in verse 13? I'm just going to read all of verse 13 again. Uh, Cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. Jerusalem has been trafficking in the souls of men. Now, when it says bodies of men, you think, oh, there must have been some kind of slavery going on. There must be trafficking in, in human life. But there's something more. They're trafficking in souls of men. This is spiritual slavery. This is spiritual bondage. Paul talked about this over in Galatians 4. He said this, this present Jerusalem is in slavery. It's in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. We're going to read more about the Jerusalem from above in the next chapters of Revelation. But that the Jerusalem from above is, is the church, which is free, which is the mother of us all. But this present, present Jerusalem is in bondage. It's in slavery. So we see while this Jerusalem had an inventory of many riches, her main trade was in enslaved human souls. And instead of fulfilling her role as liberator and the mother of mankind, she prostituted herself. She led her children into demonic slavery, into statist oppression, serving Caesar. And eventually she leads them into total annihilation. The kings are shocked. The merchants and the ship captains wail. But not everybody is bemoaning her destruction. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Rejoice over her? Wait a minute. That's kind of mean. That's kind of callous. That's not very nice to rejoice at the total destruction of the city, is it? Can you do that? Can you say that? Can you be happy? Why does the church in heaven, together with the apostles and the prophets, why do they celebrate at the destruction of the city? Why? It's because they love what God loves. It's because they hate what God hates. That's why they rejoice. They are aligned with God in his opposition of evil. They have been praying for the destruction of this hateful harlot demon city, the city that had killed the prophets. And now the smoke of this ascension offering rises to the heavens. They rejoice that their prayers have been answered. God has kept his promises. There's something here that we've lost. And you and I need to figure this out. And we need to recover this if we're ever going to see any victories in our time, in history, in the world. You and I must share the perspective of these saints who rejoice in the triumph of God over their enemies. You understand our enemies want to see us absolutely destroyed. You, you know that, right? They don't have any love for us. When our enemies get just a little bit of power, they don't hesitate to use it. They use it to promote their agendas as far and as fast as they can. You give them just a little bit of authority, just a little bit of power, and they push the accelerator all the way to the floor, and they don't hesitate to use their authority, and they don't care what you say or what you think. You can cry, you can protest, you can throw sand in the air, you can object all you want. They aren't listening. And if you get in the way, they're going to destroy you. When God gives us a little bit of power, when we get a little bit of authority and influence, why are we so afraid to use it? Why do we hesitate? Why do we want to play ball? Why, why do we want to cooperate? Why do we want to be nice and considerate? In, in 2017, the conservative party in this nation held the White House and the majority of both houses of Congress the party which is presumably still running on the fumes of whatever Christian influence we have left in our society, the party which is presumably the conservative party in this country had virtually no 
impediment to doing whatever they wanted to do. Virtually no impediment. Why didn't they do it? Why is Planned Parenthood still a thing in this country? Can you explain that to me? How do you explain that? Why do we not seek the destruction of our enemies? Why do we placate them? Why do we negotiate with them? Why do we care when they scream or whine? Why do we tolerate evil? Why do we compromise with it? How did compromise go for Israel when God told them to wipe out all the tribes, all of the idolatrous pagan tribes of the land of Canaan, they were supposed to wipe them all out and they didn't. When they left pockets of Canaanite tribes here and there, how did that work out? Well, those tribes survived and they grew powerful and they turned around and they attacked and they opposed Israel throughout their generations. They were always, always a trouble because they didn't defeat them as they were required, as God told them to do. What happened when King Saul spared the life of King Agag? Was God pleased with that? Was God happy with Saul's choice there? No, Saul lost his kingdom. You see, we don't want the enemies of the cross to just have a little setback. We don't want the enemies of, of the church, those who hate Jesus and those who hate the church, we don't want them to lose. We don't want them to take just a little, a little loss. We want to see them destroyed, absolutely destroyed. And I'm talking about abortionists and pornographers and idolaters and tyrants and all who would pervert justice and goodness in this society. We don't want them to just have a little speed bump. We, want, we don't want them to just have a little setback. We want them destroyed for good. It's not mean and it's not unholy and it's not ugly to pray for the destruction of your enemies. It's not. Always remember that the sword of the spirit is a two-edged sword. Right? We pray the one edge of the sword is that they would be converted. I've been killed and brought back to life. I have been mortified and, and have been resurrected by the Lord Jesus. And I want that for everybody. I want everybody to have that life. But you first die. You have to die to your sins. You've got to die to yourself and you have to be resurrected to new life. I want, I want that to happen. That's what I pray for. That would be great if our enemies could share in eternal life and share in the blessing. Or if they won't do that, that they would be destroyed. Either way, we pray that they would be removed and that their wickedness be stopped and their ability to kill and destroy is cut off. Until we share in the perspective of heaven, we are not going to see much victory in our day. As long as we continue to placate and compromise and play ball with evil, uh, we're not gonna see any victory. We have to pray for and rejoice in their destruction. Let me, let me just ask you one more question. The sin that you have in your life, the sin that you struggle with, are you okay if that sin just has a little setback? You know, just a little, little speed bump, little, you know, little bad day. You know, my sin just has a little bad day and I'll get right back to it tomorrow and I'll be fine. Or do you want to see your sin destroyed? Do you want to see it annihilated? Do you want to see it removed? Which is it? If you don't want to see your sin and the wicked utterly annihilated, you don't share this perspective of heaven. You're not thinking God's thoughts after him. You don't love what God loves. You don't hate what he hates. Heaven rejoices at the destruction of the harlot city because they love what God loves and they hate what God hates. And the saints rejoice as well. John sees one last angelic symbolic demonstration in this section. There's one more little scene here. We're gonna read it all together. Uh, verse 21. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Let me, for context, go back to Mark 11. Jesus told his disciples, he said, have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those, uh, that, that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, what is Jesus promising there? 
Jesus, is, this is not a general promise. Like you, you could just walk up to any mountain. Say you go to Mount Mitchell or you go to Pilate Mountain and you say, be cast into the sea. And if it doesn't happen, then you either don't have enough faith or God doesn't keep his promises. That's, that's not what Jesus is uh, proposing there. Uh, what mountain is Jesus talking about when he says, say to this mountain, be cast into the sea? Well, he's talking specifically about the temple mountain, the, the mountain from which persecution and death is going to flow to the apostles. And he says, you can pray for that mountain to be cast into the sea. And then in Revelation 8, we have that very thing happen. That image of an angel throwing that smoking, burning mountain into the sea. Now, the seas are prophetic shorthand for the Gentile nations. Anytime we see the seas, we know he's talking about Gentile nations. And so what's happening here is the, the altar stone, the, the mountain, the holy mountain of, of the temple is cast upon the waters. It's cast on the sea. It's spread throughout all the earth. So what God intended to do in a special way, in a specific place, in the temple and the altar, is now cast on the waters, spread through the earth. And when that happens, the temple system is wrapped up. Those who are involved in the temple system cease to persecute the church. God answers the prayer. The mountain is cast into the sea. Now, in Revelation 18, we get a little flavor, a little different flavor. The great rock is not an altar stone. It's not a mountain, but it's a millstone. Is this the only time we read about a millstone being cast into the sea? No, it's not, right? Uh, Jesus warned in Mark 9, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, what has Jerusalem done? They have led these little ones into error. They've led the very ones that Jesus was protecting. They've led the children of God into, into idolatry and error and wickedness. And now he's kept his promise. He's throwing them and the millstone into the sea because they have enslaved the souls of the children of God. They've caused them to stumble and it all gets cast into the sea. This great millstone that the angel hurls into the sea means all the work all the labor, all the industry and productivity of Jerusalem is gone. It's at the bottom of the sea. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, child of God, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your work is begun in and ended in gratitude to God. Your work is blessed by God. Your work is meaningful. Your work brings down tyrants. It casts down mighty from their thrones. That's what your work does. Just like Jael and just like the woman who threw the millstone out and just like Shamgar, that's what your work is. That's how your work is blessed. But Jerusalem, their work has all been in vain because they've begun and ended in ingratitude and in self-satisfaction and in, and in gluttony. Jerusalem's work has been in vain. She and her works are hurled into the bottom of the sea. Just like Pharaoh lay at the bottom of the sea together with his chariots, just like the world lay covered by the water in the flood, all the splendor of the city has been buried at sea. And all the work of the city, all the joy of the city, all the celebration has been stopped. There are seven sounds that aren't heard anymore. There's a complete Sabbath of silence and activity. There's no harps, no musicians, no flutes, no trumpets, no sound of a millstone. Well, where's that? It's at the bottom of the sea. No voice of the bridegroom, no voice of the bride. Those seven things are listed. Just an eerie, vacant quiet. And historically, that's exactly the way it was for many years. Jerusalem ceased to exist. There was a small Roman city built there in the second century, but Jews were explicitly forbidden from entering that city. Constantine, Emperor Constantine, resurrected the city of Jerusalem as a Christian city in the fourth century. After World War II, the United Nations established a new nation of Israel and gave them part of the old city of Jerusalem, the old city Constantine built, not the original city. That's gone forever. It's never coming back. But that Jerusalem that the United Nations set up doesn't have any biblical significance. There's no biblical significance to this arrangement. The Jerusalem that was at once at the center of, of, of all God's interactions with his people, that Jerusalem is gone and it is never coming back. Its altar stone and its millstone are at the bottom of the sea. Its worship system, its industry, its society, it's all gone and it's never gonna be restored the way it was under David or Solomon. 
The church is the new Jerusalem. The church is the new temple. The church is the new Bethel. The church is the new Babel. It's the true gate of God. The church is where you meet Christ and there's no salvation apart from Christ. So why, what would be the point of resurrecting or restoring a city and a temple that God has judged and buried forever? In the judgment of the city, we have God's final verdict. His judgment was undeniable to everyone. Even the kings and the merchants and the sea captains say, oh yeah, we see what's going on here. This is over. Everyone sees. And this serves as an ongoing warning to any person or any society who allow God's great covenant blessings, his great riches to turn our hearts away from God, to be uh, ungrateful. If this is how God treated his city, Jerusalem, the apple of his eye, what, what, what do you think is going to happen to us if we grow fat in luxury and ease and sin and we are ungrateful? Well, here's, here's something we need to remember. The very last thing is in conclusion. Not only does our great wealth, our great technology, our great ease present a temptation to believe that we're invincible. We think that we're uh, bulletproof. We think that we're too big to fail. And we forget to worship and we forget to give thanks to God and obey him because of our wealth and our prosperity and our ease. But there's another way that our hearts grow fat in the day of plenty. And that's when God graciously delays judgment. This city was trucking right along in their sins, believing the day of reckoning is never going to come. God either doesn't care about our sins or maybe he's not going to do anything about it. Or, or, or maybe we're justified. Maybe we're really okay. Maybe we're right. When God delays his judgment, he does it out of his mercy in order to give us time to repent. All of the seals, all of the trumpets, those were mercies. Those were judgments. Even this vision is a warning to the churches where God says, get out, come away, separate yourself. But one day, when you aren't expecting it, God says, time's up. You're done sinning. It's over. Your obnoxiousness, your rebellion, your foolishness is over you are finished. Again, how many times did we read that the judgment came in an hour? It came so quickly. It was sudden. It was unexpected. It's possible that you right now, some of you, somebody here, it's possible that you're wrapped up in rebellion and sin and your heart is entangled in some addiction or besetting habit or some desire, or you're involved in some situation that, that you know, you know this is not pleasing to God. You know God is not satisfied with you. And yet, everything is kind of okay in your life. You're, you're not suffering right now. Um, you, you, there are no consequences, immediate consequences to your sin, you think. Nothing's going on. You're fine. You need to know that that's not God saying, I'm pleased with you. That's not God saying, I'm okay with what's going on. That's God saying, I'm giving you time to repent. I'm giving you time to turn around. I'm giving you time to confess your sins, to cry out to me and separate yourself from the world that is under judgment, lest you share in its destruction. So this is the call. Every time we see a judgment like this, we say, okay, we better straighten up. Come out and be separate. The day of the Lord is near. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you again that Jesus would conquer us and destroy every part of us that is in rebellion to him and his reign and that we would be completely submitted to his rule. Father, give us life. It doesn't come from us. It comes from you and strengthen us, we pray. As we live in luxury and ease, may these not be occasions for ingratitude, but deep gratitude, knowing that from your hand, all of these good things come. We ask you to grant us this awareness and, and convict us of these things every day. In Jesus' name, amen.